So before we get to our conversation, we want to give a shout out to our friends at Casper who made today's episode possible. I'm a family guy. I love being as involved as I can with my kids' day-to-day activities. And my functional medicine practice keeps me pretty busy too. It's all good stuff, but it's a lot to balance. And some days I'm wiped out by the time I get home. So in order to do it all again the next day, I need sleep. And there's a lot that goes into a good night's rest, but having a quality mattress is key. Casper makes a really cool, very comfortable mattress with four layers of high-density memory foam and something called zone support. It's an innovative foam framework that contours to each area of the body. People love it because it's soft under your shoulders, but then firmer under your hips. Oh, and the mattress comes delivered to your door in a small box, so it feels like a magic trick. To get your own Casper mattress, go to casper.com and use code GOOPFELLAS for $100 off your purchase of select mattresses. Additional terms and conditions apply. See casper.com slash terms. Welcome to Goopfellas. I'm Seamus Mullen. I'm a chef and co-host with my good friend, Dr. Will Cole. And I'm functional medicine extraordinaire. (laughs) (laughs) Sweet. Esquire. Yeah, Esquire. Yeah, Yeah, so I'm a functional medicine practitioner. How are you doing, buddy? Um, I'm good. I'm actually, I have a little bit of a flu. Um, Oh, man. Yeah, I just flew in from from LA and I landed in New York this morning and I woke up not feeling great, which is, um, you know, the weather's changing. This is flu season in New York. Maybe it's not flu, it's just a cold. There's night flights, man. There's red eye flights mess me up. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not trying to win. I'm not trying to beat this cold. I'm playing the long game here. That's right. The infinite game of health. Exactly. As we learned from our friend, Simon Sinek. Yes, we had Simon Sinek on the show today. He's a pretty remarkable guy. Yeah, he's a visionary thinker for sure. He's an organizational consultant, motivational speaker. He's the author of multiple best-selling books. And his newest book is called The Infinite Game. It's out now. And we both just read it. And I can't stop thinking about it. It's just how it's applicable, not just to business, but to like marriage and just life itself. Yeah. Yeah. It's a completely different mindset, which I, I really appreciated the notion of understanding how when we're playing for legacy, not playing for uh, winning or losing, yeah, that we have so much, it's a much greater purpose. Such a thoughtful thinker and communicator. So without further ado, here's our conversation with Simon Sinek. Simon, it's great to have you here. And your book is launching today, The Infinite Game. It is. Is the book in and of itself an infinite game? Well, the book is the book is finite. <laughs> okay, thank God. There was a beginning, middle, and end. Sometimes when you're writing, sometimes when you're writing, it feels yeah. like. It. But that would have been good if you mastered somehow an infinite book for the infinite. Game. Well, I did joke around because I, I pushed the the date three times, I missed three <laughs> deadlines. So I joked that it was the infinite book. Right. It It works. Yeah. But it's an amazing book. I was telling you you before we started recording that my 13-year-old son, while I'm driving in preparation for our conversation today, we were listening to interviews and and speeches that you've given. And he's a super fan. He's like bringing up all these stories throughout the book to really um, of this concept of the infinite game. So for people that don't know, can you tell us what the infinite game is? Yeah, sure. So in 1986, um, a philosopher by the name of uh, James Carse uh, articulated this beautiful definition that there are two types of games, finite games and infinite games. Finite games are defined as known players, fixed rules, and an agreed-upon objective, baseball, 
right? Mm-hmm. In, in a finite game, there's always a beginning, a middle, and an end, and the objective is to win, right? But then there are infinite games. Infinite games have known and unknown players. The rules are changeable, and the objective is to, to perpetuate the game, to stay in the game as long as possible. The problem is, in, in infinite games, there's no beginning, middle, and end. Uh, and as I said, the objective is to keep playing. But when we play with a finite mindset in an infinite game, bad things happen. It destroys trust, it destroys cooperation, and it also destroys innovation. And if you think about it, um, we are players in infinite games every days of our lives, every day of our lives. You know, there's no such thing as being number one in your marriage. Like, good luck with that, you know? Mm-hmm. There's no such thing as winning global politics, and there's definitely no such thing as winning business. No one's declared the winner of business. Mm-hmm. But if you listen to too many leaders, uh, they talk about being number one, being the best, and beating their competition. Based on what? Mm-hmm. Based on what agreed upon objectives, based upon what agreed upon metrics, and based on what upon what agreed upon timeframes. In other words, too many of us in uh, in the world today, too many of us, especially in business, are playing with a finite mindset in infinite game in an infinite game. Which means, when you're playing with the wrong mindset for the game you're in, bad things happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, just like playing with the wrong mindset. You know, if you're playing with an infinite mindset in a game of baseball, the problem is the game ends. And you'll be the loser, more likely. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it increases the chances of, of things going badly. Yeah. So we have to adjust our mindset to play for the game we're actually in. And most people don't actually know the game they're in. Right. And this applies not to just business. Like you said, this is about marriage. This is about life itself, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, and we are, we are players in multiple infinite games every day of our lives. No one is the winner of life, even. Yeah. You know, our lives are finite. You know, we're born, we die. But life continues with us or without us. The players are known and unknown. (laughs) The rules are changeable. You can live your life however you want. You know, it it obeys all of the the, the criteria of an infinite game, which means if if you live a life with a finite mindset, which is you want to be the richest, the most powerful, you know, you'll hurt relationships along the way. Joy is a thing that you'll struggle to find. It's unhealthy. And so we don't get to choose the rules of the game, but we do get to choose how we play. Mm-hmm. And we can live our lives with an infinite mindset. And to live an infinite mindset is to see those around us thrive so that mm-hmm. we can actually live on beyond our own years. You know, what, what, we all have people in our lives who help form who we are. You know, and some of them may not be living anymore. They, have, they are actually living on beyond their own finite lives. Right. This is what it means to live an infinite life. We live on through others. Right, that notion of legacy is really, really... Yeah, really service. Nice. Service to others mm-hmm. is what it means to live an infinite life. And you find greater relationships, you find greater trust, you find greater cooperation, yeah. you find greater joy, and you live a healthier life. Yeah. It's not a breath of fresh air, though. I mean, so many of us are in this rat race thinking that we're going to win, but what's winning? Win- to, winning what? When, yeah. you, when you have that awakening out of these concepts in the book, it is a sense of like freedom to not be... And I think, that, I think most mm-hmm. of us already have a sense of this. Mm-hmm. You know, we go to work, and most people are uncomfortable with the way that their leaders are running the business. And we feel uncomfortable because it makes us feel icky sometimes. We feel excessive amounts of pressure, you know, to do things that we think are maybe good for the short term, but not good for the business, not good for people. Like, we feel it. And even the way we live our lives. But we look at people who, who have more power than us and more money than us, and they tell us that we don't understand business and we should do as they say. And so we sort of, like think we shrug our shoulders and go, well, they're more successful than I am. Maybe they know something I don't know. And we follow the rules that they set for us. We do it their way. Turns out that discomfort that we all feel, that instinct that we have, we're actually right. 
mm-hmm. uh, the people who we, you know, that discomfort that we have is, is a sense that we're playing by the wrong rules for the game we're in. Yeah. Uh, and the reality is that it's actually, it, I find this so ironic that the people we're taking cues from who quote unquote, you know, know more than we do, turns out they actually don't know the game they're in and they're actually playing mm. by the wrong rules. Yeah. Uh, that, that, that instinct that we have is actually right. Wow. I'm curious to, to know like what your thoughts are in terms of climate change and how that ap- uh, applies to the notion of the infinite game. Because I feel like we're really in, we, we are in politics more than anywhere else. We play with this finite mindset mm. that it's about getting through the next election. It's about getting mm. the next, getting reelected. Elections are finite. Right. But they governance are, is not. Governance is not. Right. Exactly. And, and so how, I mean, it, as we look at particularly what's going on in the world now, Potentially, with the, the the possibility of a resurgence of ISIS in, in, mm. in Syria, these are all these are all players that climate change is a player that's playing an infinite game. Sure, these are all players that we are from a Western mindset playing with a very finite mindset. Yes. We're 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 not in a position to actually to compete with. Correct. Correct. I mean, there's no such thing as beating ISIS, right? Right. Because it's 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 a belief set. Mm-hmm. You know, it used to be Al Qaeda. It changed forms. I mean, a right. lot of the people in ISIS used to be Al Qaeda. Yeah. You know, I mean, Al Qaeda still exists, but you I mean, yeah, I mean, the you know, public enemy number one is it's changed forms. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, it's like the war on drugs. Right, you, you can't stop drug dealing. It's because we're trying to win, but drug dealers are just trying to sell more drugs. Like right. they're not trying to beat the police. Yeah, you know, and so the way you play in those games is the goal is to frustrate your enemy mm-hmm. because you can't win, but you can you can cause them to run out of the will and resources to continue to play. And they'll drop out of the game. You're going to get a new somebody else to replace them. Mm-hmm. But that's where the finite games are important. You know, the infinite game is not the absence of finite games. It's made up of finite games. It, it, is, it is the context within which those finite games exist. Mm-hmm. So it's good to have goals. I, I, like to think of, I like to think of it more like a lifestyle than, than a game. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, we overuse sports analogies because sports analogies are finite. Mm-hmm. You know, I like to think of it more of a lifestyle. It's more like exercise, right? Which is... It, it, there's nothing wrong with having health goals. You know, I want to lose a certain amount of weight by a certain date. Yes, goals are very motivating for human beings. We like metrics. We like to see that we're making progress. It helps us. You know, everybody's wearing a Fitbit because it helps us, you know, measure that we're, we, we feel like we're going in the right direction. But you don't arrive at healthy. But you don't arrive at healthy. And what happens if you miss your health goal? Right. What happens if you didn't lose the right amount of weight by the right, by that date? You might feel a little bummed out, but you're still way healthier because you've been engaged in this healthy lifestyle yeah. and you'll hit your goal Three months later, yeah, and 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 even if you do hit your goal, you can't stop working out. You have to work out for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't just—it doesn't just like do it then stop. Mm-hmm. And and that's how we have to change the way we think about these things, which is which is it's okay to to drive to win an election, but now we have to change our mindset to this infinite mindset where it's about governance and it's about the next generation, not about the next election. Mm -hmm. And we have to think of businesses like exercise. Yes, have goals. Yes, have annual goals. But if you miss them, it's not the end of the world. Mm -hmm. Because the goals that we set and the timeframes that we set them in are arbitrary. Usually we set annual goals in business because that's when we pay pay taxes. If we pay taxes every 18 months, then all of our goals would be 18 months. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's like, here's here's a real life scenario. You know, we give two teams' uh, financial goals, a, a number that they need to hit by the end of the, the fiscal year, mm-hmm. right? And we offer them an incentive if they hit that goal, some sort of reward, right? Bonus. And one team, you know, the, the leadership is so financially driven, morale is up and down, like they're good if they have a win that day. They're, you know, the, the people are coming and going, they're getting fired, they're, they're quitting. 
there's not a lot of trust. There's a lot of backstabbing. It's just not, it's not a great corporate culture, but they have a big push on sales in the last quarter and they hit the goal and we bonus that leader. Mm-hmm. There's another team where morale is really high. No one's quitting. Everybody loves each other. Everybody takes care of each other. They're making good, steady progress. It's not the roller coaster like we saw on the other team. You know, just nice, nice, steady line up. But they miss their goal by 12 months. But they're clearly going to hit it at 14 months. But Mm -hmm. we give that team nothing. You cannot incentivize performance. You can only incentivize behavior. And so what kind of behaviors are we promoting inside an organization mm-hmm. if we bonus the first team but not the second team. Yeah. We're promoting behaviors that destroy trust. Yeah. You talk about in the trusting teams like this this factor of an infant mindset. Can you talk about that a little bit? So so I'll tell you a true story. So it's a it's a story that I stayed at the the Four Seasons in Las Vegas. And it's a beautiful hotel. And the reason it's a beautiful hotel is because of the people who work there, not just the fancy beds. Any mm-hmm. hotel can buy a fancy bed, you know? That when you walk through the halls and somebody says hello, mm-hmm. you get the distinct feeling that they wanted to say hello, not that they were told to say hello. And they happen to have a coffee bar in the lobby of the Four Seasons in Las Vegas. And one afternoon, I went and bought myself a cup of coffee. And the barista working that day was a kid named Noah. Noah was funny. He was engaging. I spent far too long standing there buying a cup of coffee because I just was so enjoying talking to Noah. And as is my nature, I asked Noah, do you like your job? And without skipping a beat, Noah said, I love my job. Now, in my world, that's significant Mm -hmm. because like is rational, right? I like the people I work with. I like the challenge. I get paid well. I like my job. But love is emotional. It's a a higher order connection. Mm -hmm. You know, do you love your wife? I like her a lot. But it also (laughs) allows you you to have the moment of saying, I don't always like it. Which, right. is, which is a point that you make in the book, Correct. which I really... Really important, right. You love yeah. your children every day. You don't have to like your children every right. day. You, you don't have to like your job every day, but you can love your job every day. Right. right. It's, a, it's, a, it's an emotional connection versus a rational connection. Mm-hmm. And in this particular case, Noah said, I love my job. So my, my ears perked up. And I immediately followed up and said, tell me specifically what the Four Seasons is doing that you would say to me, I love my job. And he said... Um, Throughout the day, managers will walk past me and ask me if there's anything that I need, uh, anything that, I, that they can do to help me do my job better, not just my manager, any manager. Mm-hmm. And then he said, I also work for another hotel. And there, the managers walk past us and make sure we're doing everything right. They try and catch us when we're doing things wrong and drive the numbers. He says, there, I like to keep my head below the radar, just get through the day and mm-hmm. collect my paycheck. Only at the Four Seasons, he said, do I feel I can be myself. Now think about that. This is the exact same human being in two different companies. And my experience of him would have been profoundly different, not because of him, but because of the leadership environment in which he's working. You know, I get this question all the time. How do we get the most out of our people? Like they're not a towel that you wring them out. You know, it's not, that's not how people work. Yeah. You know, the, cre- the correct question is how do we create an environment in which our people can work at their natural best? Yeah. How do we create an environment in which trust can, can flow freely and when that happens, what you get are these remarkable teams and remarkable experiences because of the leadership environment. This is the exact same human being. Yeah. We blame the people for service issues, but very often it's the leadership. I, I had a remarkable experience this weekend at the container store where I walked in and I, I was blown away by how incredibly helpful everyone was. Everybody seemed to really be enjoying their job. And then come to find out that they have one of the best employee retention um, plans in, in, in the country. And, and it's not that they're just hiring amazing people. 
It's that they know how to cultivate a culture in which they're fertilizing and allowing people to be as good as they can be. Absolutely, and it's, and and Kip Tyndall, the founder of the, of Container Store, you know, he 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 believes people come before profit. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean profit isn't important, but there has to be a hierarchy. Mm-hmm. They, they can never be equal because mm-hmm. it's sometimes there will always be decision decisions that one has to lean towards the other, and you know, trump the other. It has to be a bias, and he has a bias for people, mm-hmm. and he takes care of his people, and he has learned over time that keeping somebody on for eleven years. And paying them really well and giving them great benefits and training them and all of this saves him more money than having to hire and rehire people every every season mm-hmm. and 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 start from scratch, even though they're quote unquote cheaper, not to mention the fact that he cannot train that kind of experience, that kind of service, and that kind of corporate knowledge mm-hmm. in on an annual basis. Yeah. So he would rather pay somebody extremely well and have them work there for over a decade on the floor of a of of a of a retail store. Mm-hmm. He also understands that something like growth, and this is a very infinite mindset to have, growth is a dial. It's not an absolute. And we're obsessed in in American business, I don't know why, with hyper growth. You know, you know as if it's a badge of honor. You know, you talk to a young startup, they're like, "We're hyper growth." Well, is that good? Is growing really fast? Good? Like, who said that's good? Mm-hmm. You know? It might be. I mean, I know the venture capitalists like it, but is it actually a good way to build a business? So, for example, to take retail. You know, our goal is to open 100 stores this year. So you're opening stores so fast that you're not hiring the right people and you're not spending enough time to train them right. So you may hit your 100-store goal at the end of the year, and the store experience that you and I are going to have as customers is going to be complete junk. Yeah. Kip recognizes that it's a dial, that... You may you can still have the goal, but if you recognize that you're not hiring good people and you're not training them right, you change the dial. Say mm-hmm. we're gonna we're gonna open twenty stores this year. Yeah, you know, it's a dial. So totally. this idea of hyper growth, I don't understand it. Healthy growth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sustainable growth. Sustainable growth, but hyper growth, I don't understand the. You know, we're a gazelle. Is that a good thing? <laughs> yeah. You know, we're not gazelles. I've heard you talk about that, that people over profits, and how anti-capitalists will say, like, you know, they'll judge the system as it is, and they'll say you capitalism is bad. But that, if you look at Adam Smith's right words, can you talk about that? I sure. thought that was fascinating. Yeah, it's very funny when I talk about people before profit. I'm accused of being anti-capitalist, which is ironic. I'm a diehard capitalist, but not the form of capitalism we have. We have a bastardized form of capitalism these days, which um, largely is born out of the theories of a man by the name of Milton Friedman. Mm-hmm. He was a, uh, an economist in the, in the 1970s, and he proposed uh, a definition of the responsibility of business. And his definition was the responsibility of business is to maximize profit within the bounds of the law, Right. In other words, profit before people. Mm-hmm. Maximize, that. that is the responsibility. And that is largely the definition that most people accept as the, the responsibility of business today. Like we don't even question it. But it's actually not the way it's always been. Um, it actually, that was a relatively new idea. And it was popularized in the 80s and 90s. Remember, these were boom years of relative peace. Mm-hmm. And and you had CEOs like Jack Welch, the, the CEO of GE, who really doubled down on, on this idea where um, you started to, they started to uh, incentivize and, and reward and pay executives, not based on the performance of the company, but based on the performance of the equity mm-hmm. of the stock price. You know, um, you started to see for the very first time the use of mass layoffs on an annualized basis to balance the books. Mass layoffs to balance the books did not exist in the United States prior to the, ni- prior to the early 1980s. Did not exist. It's an entirely new concept that was popularized in the 80s and 90s. And shareholder supremacy, 
where the wants, needs, and desires of the shareholder are put above, are put above customers yeah. or employees was an idea that was popularized in the 80s and 90s. Yeah. It is a bastardized version of capitalism that we're using today that we are seeing the problems with because we're prioritizing the finite game over the infinite. We're prioritizing the end of the year over the health of the, the long-term health of the business. And we're doing this at an economic, le- at an economy level as well. You know, after the Great Depression, um, they passed something called the Glass-Steagall Act. So that was 1929. They passed the Glass-Steagall Act shortly after that to prevent another such depression from happening, another stock market crash from happening. Um, and in the 1980s, in the name of corporate growth, mm-hmm. Glass-Steagall was basically dismantled. It was basically eviscerated, mm-hmm. right? Do you know how many stock market crashes we had between Glass-Steagall and when they started to break it apart in the 1980s? The answer is zero. zero. And the number of stock market crashes we've had since they dismantled Glass-Steagall, three. three. We had the 1987 stock market crash. Uh, we had uh, the dot-com crash. And now we had 2008, mm-hmm. right? In other words, our finite mindset gets us in trouble. And so I promote Adam Smith capitalism. Adam Smith, who was the, the 18th century uh, <clears throat> philosopher and economist who proposed this idea of, uh, of, of a free market and capitalism uh, and, and this massive, massive book called The Wealth of Nations, mm-hmm. of which Thomas Jefferson, by the way, had a copy. And the United States was very much influenced by, you know, the birth of the United States was very much influenced by the infinite thinking of Adam Smith. And even Adam Smith believed the customer came first. You know, he actually wrote that it's such an obvious idea that I don't need to write about it. Yeah. It was one sentence, you know. So so this idea that the, the shareholder comes first is actually bad for capitalism. Yeah. And it's actually bad for the capitalism that that helped make America what it is. Mm. And that finite mindset, I mean, I remember very well in 2008 in, in the industry that I work in, in the food industry, seeing things just change dramatically overnight, watching the publishing world change overnight. I mean, Gourmet Magazine is a great example of this, that there was so much equity built into this incredible history of nearly 100 years of Gourmet Magazine. And in overnight it was taken down because we were stuck in this this mindset of like well, okay well to save this we just need to cut costs or cut our losses and move on and had we had more of a finite mindset something like gourmet magazine would probably still be around in a different in a different environment in a different context but we wouldn't have lost that incredible heritage yeah of course uh, what you tend to find is finite mindsets uh they work to protect a business model where uh infinite mindsets work to advance an idea, mm-hmm. right? And are agnostic as to how that idea is advanced. So where finite is about winning and losing, infinite is about advancing, right? Mm-hmm. right? So uh, in an infinite mindset, you tend to embrace uncertainty. You see uncertainty and surprises as, as opportunity. Right. If there's a surprise, there's a new technology that's invented, you go, ooh, this is exciting. Whereas a finite mindset has a new technology invented, they go, ooh, this is scary. Finite likes to have excessive amounts of control. So when the internet showed up, most organizations reacted by doing nothing because it was scary, right? They didn't change their business models until they were forced to, right? And then they were playing defense because they had a traditional business model that they made tons of money and they protected it. One of my favorite examples of of this is Blockbuster. You know, so Blockbuster was pretty much the only major national video rental chain in the United States. Uh, it was the 800-pound gorilla. I um, mean, this little company called Netflix showed up with an entirely different business model, which is subscriptions. 
You remember we used to get the DVDs in the mail. Mm -hmm. You could keep them as long as you wanted, right? (laughs) You could keep them as long as you wanted. You paid the same price. And we knew that streaming would hit eventually, but the technology wasn't there yet. But these guys had a business model that was prepared for it. And the CEO of Blockbuster went to the board and said, we should probably explore this subscription model thing. And the board would not allow him to make the change because the company made 12% of its revenues from... Late fees. Late fees. Wow. Exactly, which they would lose. Yeah. Right? Yeah. They were protective of the 12% to the point where they actually put themselves out of business. Mm. Yeah. Because they wanted... Because they couldn't embrace... And you see this... And to your point about Gourmet Magazine, you know, why is it that, you know, Amazon invented itself mm-hmm. and Amazon invented the Kindle, the digital e-reader... And not the publishing industry, mm-hmm. because they were protecting printed materials rather than helping people read more. Right. They would have invented the e-reader. Mm-hmm. Why is it that Netflix is reinventing television and not the traditional television and movie industry? You know, why is it that Apple invented iTunes and not the music industry? Yeah, it's because they were all so preoccupied staving off change right. and protecting an old business model. It's a finite mindset. Yeah. Nothing short of a finite mindset. This, this is a great example of the dangers of a finite mindset. We literally find it impossible to embrace change and only change when forced to. It is defensive. Yeah, I've heard you refer to it as existential flexibility. And you mentioned, right. I've heard you talk about Steve Jobs at the, in the early days. Right. Fascinating story. And can you talk about yeah, that? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it is a great story. Um, uh, it's the quintessential story of what existential flexibility is. Mm-hmm. And existential flexibility is the willingness to profoundly change your business model in order to help advance your cause, advance whatever it is you're looking to advance, right? And uh, Steve Jobs had a just cause. It was about um, uh, empowering the individual to stand up to brother. A computer in every household. Computer in every household. You know, that was... Uh, a computer in every desk was actually Bill Gates. But, but S- Steve Jobs... Uh, believed in, in in individual power, and he saw that the personal computer could give people that power. So this is why he was so drawn to the technology. He imagined a day, Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak imagined a day in which one person could compete against a corporation thanks to a computer. Well, by the way, that's what we have today, which is yeah. kind of amazing. Yeah. yeah. And in, he, they'd already had huge success from the Apple I and the Apple II. It's already a big company. He's already a famous CEO. And in 1979, December of 1979, Jobs and a few of his senior executives visited Xerox Park in Palo Alto, California, and were given a tour of Xerox Park. And Xerox showed them something they had invented, a new technology called the <clears throat> Graphic User Interface. Right, mm. which allowed people to control a computer by moving a mouse across a desktop and clicking on icons to control the computer versus having to use a computer language to, to get mm. it to do things. And somebody who believes in individual empowerment, Jobs sees this new technology called a graphic user interface. And he goes, he says to his, 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 his colleagues as they're leaving, we have to invest in this. And and his executives say one of the, one of one of the one of the executives at the, uh, that day, um, I guess the voice of reason, I guess, he said, Steve, we can't. We've already invested millions of dollars and countless man hours in a completely different strategic direction. If we invest in this graphic user interface, we're going to blow up our own company. Mm-hmm. To which Jobs replied, Better we should blow it up than someone else. That decision became the Macintosh, mm-hmm. a computer platform, an, an OS so profound that it completely changed computing as we know it today. The entire software of Windows, which came later, is designed to act like a Macintosh, which then helped somebody Mm -hmm. like Bill Gates say a computer, a PC on every desk. Mm -hmm. It made it accessible, it made a computer a household appliance. 
But it was that willingness to walk away from massive investment mm -hmm. because he found a better way to advance his cause that was ex existential flexibility. His willingness to, a lot of, a lot of executives don't have that. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons is they don't actually have a clear sense of cause or vision that they're working to advance. Mm -hmm. This is not about shiny object syndrome that a lot of entrepreneurs suffer from. You know, every time they hear a good idea, they want to shift the whole company. That's not what I'm talking about. Right. Mm -hmm. What I'm talking about is something that's very prescriptive and very consistent. Mm -hmm. And when you have a clear sense of cause and purpose, and you're willing to make this existential flexibility, this existential flex, whereas shiny object syndrome you know, causes huge amounts of stress in the company, and they think the CEO is like, oh, God, here we go again, you know? When you have a clear sense of purpose and you're willing to go through an existential flex, uh, everybody understands why we're doing it. They may not like it, but they mm. agree it's the right thing to do. It's going to put the company through massive short-term stress, maybe even short-term losses, but everyone mm. thinks it's worth it for the long term. So where Blockbuster couldn't suffer the short-term losses for the good of the long term, which cost them their entire business, Apple was willing to suffer the increased stress and maybe missed deadlines of new, you know, platforms coming out, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you remember how many, you know, when Steve Jobs was alive, they were constantly missing mm -hmm. <laughs> their release dates. Oh, yeah. They would announce it and then they'd be late. It was constantly happening. Yeah. And it used to make everybody frustrated and used to drive Wall Street crazy. But... Jobs was operating with this infinite mindset. He, he understood that it was more important to make a great product than it was to get it out on time. We're going to take a quick break. Will and I spend a lot of time talking about food. Some might even say that we get a little obsessed, but we know how important it is to nourish your body with what it needs to function at its very best. There's another thing that's crucial for optimal health, and you've probably heard me admit that I've struggled with it, and that's sleep. There are a lot of sleep tools out there, but arguably the most crucial component to a good night's sleep is a good mattress. And Casper makes a great one. What's so special about it? The Casper mattress combines four layers of pressure-relieving foam so you stay comfortable all night. And the material's super breathable so you can stay cool while you sleep. Beyond that, Casper is pretty much everything else you need to create the perfect sleep environment. They have bedding, bed frames, and a glow light to help you catch some Zs. Since we ideally spend a third of our lives sleeping, it's worth being comfortable while you do it, right? So check out casper.com and use the code GOOPFELLAS to get $100 off your purchase of select mattresses. Additional terms and conditions apply. See casper.com slash terms. All right, let's get back to our conversation with Simon Sinek. Yeah, I really liked the, the anecdote that you told in the book about being with the executive from, from Apple and you're talking about the mp3 player that you had oh, and how much great? how much better it was than the yeah. original ipod and and uh and the executive from apple's like yeah you're probably right yeah yeah and it was very much like it reminded me a lot of um i, I heard uh, tony shea from uh -huh. zappos say he was not interested in creating a, a shoe company the best shoe company in the world he wanted to be the best customer service company that happened to sell shoes and i think that that's a, a, a very different mindset and, and it's one of the challenges that we have is that it's really hard to cultivate that within within a business yeah and when we sell a product unfortunately we, we become enamored with the product mm -hmm. and the product is incidental it's a it's a it's a mechanism you know whatever mm -hmm. our companies make or do it's it's the manner in which we are working to advance the cause but you know the company nintendo is a great example that company's been around for well over 100 years mm -hmm. It's a video game company. How is that possible? Right. Well, it's because they started selling dominoes and playing cards. It's always, always, always been a game company. Yeah. And it's always, the, their, their vision has been the same for 150 years or something, mm -hmm. which is to bring joy through games. Well, and this is the reason why Nintendo is so purely a game company. And they've never veered into like 
phones mm-hmm. or they could. They, I mean, they're totally technologically equipped to do it, yeah. but it, they've never done it because they're, they're, they've stayed true to their roots. Now, they're totally agnostic as to, as to how they bring the joy and what the games are. Mm-hmm. You know, where once it was dominoes and playing cards, now it's, it's, it's high-tech video games. Yeah. But it's always, been, it's always been that. And I love that. Yeah. Do, you, do you think that culturally, it seems like there are a lot of Japanese companies that seem to play the infinite game better than a lot of American companies. I think it's an. I think Asian companies in general. I mean, like you know, compare America to China. You mm-hmm. know, we want to do everything in four years in election cycles. Right. They have a thousand year plan. Right. You mm-hmm. know, and it's the collective too versus the individual. And it's the collective versus the individual. And um, uh, and and the Japanese as well. You know, you you work for one company for your whole life, mm-hmm. and it's an honor. And the company, by the way, takes care of you. Right. You know, mass layoffs is not a thing that Japanese companies embraced. You know. And you took care of your people and you pay them well. And there's a massive amount of employment and it's just what you do. Mm-hmm. The Toyota way, which is, um, which, which the Americans discovered the way Toyota was making better cars mm-hmm. than America, right. than American cars. They went to the American factory, uh, they went to the Toyota factories, the American executives and academics went and watched, went to Toyota factories and they, they just saw it work better. Mm-hmm. And every employee at a Toyota factory is empowered to say, hey, I think we can do this slightly better right. and, and f- do this slightly more efficiently. And unfortunately, because um, we as Americans, we just... Appropriate and don't st- execute. <laughs> well, we're stupid, you know, yeah. which is we saw it as, a, as an efficiency thing. Right. And so we brought it to America and we called it lean. Right. Ugh. Ugh. It was never about efficiency. It was never about efficiency. It was about constant improvement. But we took the Toyota way and broke it. Mm. And the number of companies that have successfully implemented lean in America is close to zero. Right. Mm. You know, because we think it's about numbers and efficiency. No, it's not. We use people. We lay off people in the name of lean. They would never do that. I wonder if it, I wonder if it has something to do with the cultural concept of ikigai in, in, in Japan, with this notion of sense of purpose. What? It, why are you here? What is it that you're doing? And if you can take that and then apply it to your career, to what you're doing. I mean, we look at, for instance, in, in, in the United States, in the, in the restaurant world, a waiter is a waiter is a stepping stone to get to something else. You're a server because this is just something, so much so much of what we do in our mundane life and our mundane jobs are really just a means to an end. And, that, and we don't really know what that end is. And when we take that notion and you apply it to business, ultimately we're going to fall on our face. And I think there's just something really, really beautiful about in, in Japan when you see this notion of like, okay, this is, and the idea that Ikigai is really so important to knowing where you're going with your life and where you're taking your life that um, you could almost say that it's one of the things that leads to longevity as well. So we, I, don't, I, we don't back away from our sense of purpose. I think you're 100% right. Um, you know, I think Asian cultures in general have a sense of infinite more than we do in the West. They have a, they have a sense of what it's for. You know, and in the West and America, like so many things, sort of, you know, uh, we we sort of lead by example. We're sort of mm-hmm. the most, <laughs> one of the most finite. And, you know, we, we have had some great short-term wins. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think you're right. And I think it's, it's, it's not a question of right or wrong or better or worse. It's a question of what's the right balance, mm-hmm. you know, because too far one way, you know, is it's sort of hippie commune and you don't actually get anything done. Right. Which is, which is mm-hmm. equally... Un, unappealing and uninspiring. Mm-hmm. You know, there is something, there's something to be said for, you know, putting in a hard day's worth of work and seeing the fruits of your labor. Right. And and human beings like that. I mean, human beings kind of all want the same three things. We want to feel safe. We want to feel a part of something bigger than ourselves. And we want the ability to provide for ourselves and provide for our families, you know, do, do work and be rewarded for our work. 
And I think that all three of those things matter. It's not one of those things. Um, and I think America has over-indexed on accomplishment and kind of forgotten what's it all for. So what's the point of accomplishing something? Mm. What's the point of being number one? Right. You know, is it just a, it's, it, you know, it's like, I, I love talking to, to entrepreneurs. I'm like, why are you doing this? Like, why'd you start this? You know, cause I want to make money. I'm like, what are you like Scrooge McDuck? You just lie <laughs> in bed and throw your money around and roll mm -hmm. around in it. That's never the case. You know, nobody just sits there and counts their money all day. You know, we want something from that. We want freedom. Right. Or we, we want to be able to give it away or we want to be able to donate it or whatever it is. Things always have purpose. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I think for us to ask the question, you know, what is this for? Um, what good will come of this um, uh, beyond serving myself but serving those around me? I, I think are questions that we can do a better job of asking and answering. But, but, but the irony is, you know, in America, even the way we attempt to solve these problems is very selfish. Mm -hmm. is very individualistic and very mm -hmm. sort of finite-minded. Yeah. I mean, we have a problem in America with work-life balance, right? And so what do we do? We go do more yoga, you know? No amount of yoga is going to fix the work-life balance issue you've got. No, we outsource it. We outsource it, right? Mm -hmm. Or, or, or I, I, you know, I'll tell you, this is a true story. I was at a meeting once and there was a, a, a woman sitting next to me who's a, a big, tiny yoga instructor. Apparently, she's a, a significant yoga instructor. And she was on her phone the entire time at the meeting, under the table. You know, I happened to be sitting next to her, as so I could see. And it wasn't like, you know, a family member was in the hospital and she was checking in. Like, I could see she was just on social media, you know? And at one point, you know, the meeting in the meeting, we were talking about being present. And she popped her head up and said, that's why I love yoga. It helps me be present. It's like being present is not about something you do for an hour, mm -hmm. right? It's like, I was present for an hour. You know, I feel great. That's not what being present means. And, and we've, now, we've now created being present as a, as a standard for ourselves. I, I think we've forgotten what being present means. Being present is a service to another human being. You don't get to determine when you're present. You're present when somebody else says you are, mm -hmm. you know? You, the reason we do yoga the reason we meditate is because we learn the practice of, 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 of quiet. You know, meditation where you learn to label that a thought and put it out of your head and deal with it later is so that when you're talking to someone, you're not planning the thing that you're going to say. You're actually listening to the things that they're saying and the thoughts that you're having, you're putting them aside and you'll deal mm -hmm. with them later because you've been practicing that. And you can tell that you've been present at the end of a conversation when somebody says to you, thank you for listening to mm -hmm. me or I feel heard or I really feel you were here with me. That's what being present means. Yeah. And it's not something you do for an hour. It's something that you have to try and do every day of your life, but it's in service to other people. What we've forgotten in America is all of these Eastern philosophies are for others. Yeah. We've made them for ourselves. There's no such thing as a perfect infinite game. There's no such thing as a perfect infinite-minded leader. There's no such thing as a perfect infinite-minded nation. There's no such thing as a perfect infinite-minded uh, organization. Like like health, it's a constant, it's a constant job. You're never going to be perfectly healthy. You're never. You always have to exercise. You always have to tweak your diet. You always have to try and get more sleep. You always have to work on your relationships because we forget about you know mm -hmm. loving relationships are part of a healthy lifestyle. Uh, and and it's work every single day. And it requires discipline and having to get out of bed when you don't want to and eat celery when you'd rather have chocolate cake. And sometimes we get it wrong and sometimes we slip it up and sometimes we're lazy and it's it's effort. And that's what the infinite game is. Mm -hmm. So you know? so basically the infinite game is a 1968 Jaguar <laughs> that you have to like constantly care for and, and take care of and, and always have the objective of making sure that you're going to pass this on to the next generation. It's exactly right. That's yeah. exactly I love what it. it is. I mean, as we're going through life, 
it's it's helpful for me. I mean, for instance, what you just said resonated when you're talking about the idea of being compassionate, allowing thoughts to come and go as you practice meditation, because like any other muscle, you get better at it so that when you are, you can be an active listener and you can really give someone your attention. You can be in an active service. I mean, um, Terry Real was, he used the acronym WAIT. Why am I talking? Because I think we do so often think of conversation as ping pong. But what I'm just wondering if there are like little, yeah. small little tricks that we can, or things that we can be, we can observe in our own behavior that help us adopt more of an, of an infinite mindset. Yeah, for sure. So the idea of winning and losing, mm -hmm. um, to start thinking of uh, things as ahead and behind, mm. you know, like you didn't get the promotion. Did you lose? No, you're just behind, you know? And if we think about it, there's a great Chinese um, uh, story of a, of a young man who's born with an amazing ability to, for horse riding. And everyone in the, in the village says, you're so lucky. And the monk says, we'll see. And then he falls off a horse. It's a great story. And, yeah. and breaks his leg and, his, and, just, and it ends his career. And everyone in the village says, you're so unlucky. And the monk says, we'll see. And then war breaks out and all the men are sent to battle, but he can't go because of his busted leg. And everybody in the village says, you're so lucky. And the monk says, we'll see. You know, it's like my own experience. You know, the concept of why was born out of struggle and pain, mm -hmm. an experience that I never want to ever relive, but kind of glad it happened, you know? So there's no such thing as good, bad, or win-loss. It's it's the journey. And 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 James Carse, you know, the way he, he came up with the concept of finite and infinite, you know, one of the things he observed is he would watch his children. He had three three children. And he would see that when they played games with winning and losing, like for when they were playing ping pong, for example, there was always fighting and screaming and yelling and kids getting pissed off because they lost or accusing the other one of cheating. And it's like, but, you know, whenever the finite game was there, there was always tension. But then when he would watch them do a creative exercise, like they were painting or making something, something infinite, they would play for hours and hours and there was never any fighting and people would come and go and they would join and they would leave. And what he recognized is that it's not about winning and losing, it's about playing. Mm -hmm. You know, both capital P and lowercase mm -hmm. p. It's the play. It's not the win and the loss. It's, and, and if you think about it, like I, I play, I love Scrabble, you know? And sometimes I play Scrabble against, the, against my phone, you know? Mm -hmm. And I can see myself, like the, the, I accuse the, the thing of cheating. Mm -hmm. It absolutely does. It's so... <laughs> You know, I accuse the thing of cheating and I get frustrated when I'm doing, when it's destroyed, I'm like, it's 150 points ahead of me and I want to just end the game and start again. And I've started to be like, that's okay. Let me just keep playing for me. Let me see if I can make the best word I can make, you know, and it becomes about the playing, not about mm -hmm. the winning and the losing. It becomes because the winning and losing is inconsequential. It's me playing on a subway against a computer. I mean, give me a break. Yeah. You know, but we become so attached yeah. to, to the win or the loss. Yeah. As if it's as if it's a self judgment. Yeah. And so one of the easy hacks to do is to start enjoying the play. Same with business. Like mm -hmm. we're so obsessed in business about being number one and winning and losing. But what about the joy of business? The joy of playing the game of business. Right. The joy it's, of creation. The yeah. joy of creation. And I think to start to pursue and see things as creative mm -hmm. journeys and, and, and enjoy the play of it, I think is a, is, a, is 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 these are again if you notice these are all mindset shifts. Right. That's yeah. why I refer to the infinite mindset. Mm -hmm. The other one is to stop seeing other players as competitors and start seeing them as, as, as rivals. Mm. There are other players in the game. Mm -hmm. And some of them are worthy of comparison. You know, some of them are better at the game than we are. And instead of trying to beat them and mm -hmm. undermine them, yeah. um, try and learn from them. To look at them and go, God, they're so good at that. I need to up my game on that. And learn from them and respect them. 
So even in our, even at, you, it's totally unhealthy to have competitors at work in our, in our own company. Mm-hmm. And CEOs and executives who, who like to create internal competition, it's really good for the short term and it's really bad for the health of the company. But to have internal rivals is mm-hmm. great. Other people that we can learn from, we've all had the experience at work where we got pissed off at someone else's promotion. We've all had the experience where somebody that we know got promoted and we got angry. Think about that. We're upset at the at the good fortune of another one of our colleagues. Mm-hmm. Well, they didn't deserve it. It's usually about us. Mm-hmm. So the question I would raise is, what is it about that person that it's revealing in us? What yeah. mirror is being held up to us? Yeah. You know? And to and because usually if you have an angry response to another person, it's probably because it, their strengths reveal to us our own weaknesses, mm-hmm. and it's much easier to direct that energy against them than it is to take a hard look at ourselves so, and yeah. say, "I really yeah. suck at this, and I really need to up my game." Yeah, mm-hmm. um, or partner with them You're right. if there's complementary skill sets. Yeah. So to to start to see other players in the game as rivals versus competitors is a big one, and we talked about the joy of play. Um, um, to not see things as end-all be-alls, to remember that the, the targets we set and the dates we set are arbitrary. Mm-hmm. They're absolutely important. You can't run a marathon without mile markers. You know, it's unnerving. We need metrics. Right. They help us, but metrics don't determine the end of the game. Right. Metrics help us determine the speed and the distance. Right. How fast am I traveling? How far have I traveled? That's just like the mile markers in a marathon. How yeah. fast am I going? How far have I gone? But that's it. But that's it. It doesn't indicate the end of the game. Yeah. And, and to, at the end of the quarter, the end of the year, if you miss a number, you hit a number. The question is, that we need to ask ourselves is, how did I get here? Did I get here in a healthy way? Am I building a good team? Am I being a good leader? And I'll hit that target in 14 months. It's fine. It was just there as a guide to help drive us. You know? And it's okay to have uh, bonuses when we hit goals, but that can't be the only thing. They should be, they should be balanced. Let, 50% for, your, for hitting the goal, but 50% for how you got there. So if you're treating the team like dirt, here's a modern example. Boeing is really struggling right now because they've got planes with cracked wings and they've got a plane that's actually dangerous, yep. right? Yeah. And it's grounded. And that's because the company's been so financially driven mm-hmm. and it's about efficiencies and, and pushing cost out of things and putting so much pressure on the people to make numbers by certain dates that other things got forgotten. Like, is this really a good plane worth selling? And it's not that the people are bad people and they didn't care. It's that the pressures and the incentives would put them on the, to focus on the wrong things. It wasn't balanced. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What would have been healthier is if 50% of your bonus came from did you hit the numbers and 50% of your bonus came from is this an airworthy aircraft. Yeah. And they were looking at themselves as being losers in a game of winning and losing. Correct. And Boeing used to have 90-something percent of the commercial airline business because they were the only company. Right. And they were unnerved. I mean, this is hilarious. Like, they were unnerved when Airbus showed up. Because they lost market share. Well, when you're the only player, well, where's market share going to come from? Right. And as you said, they saw it as a loss, as opposed as opposed to amazing a new competitor that can push us because right. we don't have a worthy rival that can force us to make an even better product than we've ever made. And what will help us sell our planes, as opposed to be number one, mm-hmm. what will help us sell our planes is we make really great planes. Right. Like that's what will help us sell planes. Yeah. Um, but they became unnerved and they started second guessing themselves and making decisions. And we saw it happen with the 787. Yep. You know, they started s- sort of looking at their own aircraft and saying, well, what did Airbus do? Um, and they became so unnerved by the competition and started reacting to the competition that what you end up is, is over course of times, little decisions are made. Nobody did these things on purpose. Nobody wants to make a dangerous plane. It wasn't right. what they did. But what ends up happening when you over-index on finite is you get a plane that 
that's actually nobody wants to get on and pilots don't want to fly. I love this idea of culture because I think that the culture is sort of like a game that doesn't have a winner and loser. Correct. And as you're creating that and you're fostering it and thinking of it sort of as a garden, it's almost like a perennial garden. Some things are going to die. Some things are going are, are to grow up. Having complementary plant species growing together will in, enhance the nourishment, enhance the, the nutrients of the soil. And I, I think adopting that mindset, it's extremely difficult now because we live in a, in a culture of scarcity and we live in a culture of there's never enough. Um, we don't have enough happiness. We don't have enough success. We don't have enough of getting to the to the to the finish line. And there's so many things that are that are that reinforce that notion from a media standpoint. Um, but I love the idea of embracing a mindset that is much more about the long game, which is not a game that ends. And I think this is why Cars's work in this book are you know I think important for the times, which is we need this, mm-hmm. you know, and and you know one of the one of the for me, the one of the empowering things about this idea is it gave me the courage to say, wait a minute, I'm not the crazy one. You know, I was, I'm constantly being accused of being a crazy idealist and that's not how business works. And it turns out that is how business works. Yeah. It is infinite. And, and playing to win and be number one and be the best actually is counterintuitive. Mm-hmm. It doesn't actually make a better, better stronger business. And, and it's been incredibly empowering that when I face criticism or I'm accused of being anti-capitalist or any of these things that I smile and go, hmm, yeah, hmm. yeah, no. And just focus on my own work. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not trying to beat anyone. I'm not trying to convince anyone. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm doing my thing. And, and I invite as many people who want to join me to come because it's, it's, it's a better way to live a life. It's a better way. I mean, this is, this is the reason I love coming on, on shows like yours, which is we're all, we all share the same mentality. You know, we, we're all marching in lockstep. Everybody who's listening to this, people who tune into this podcast, we're already believers of the same thing. We already share the same values. And we're all showing up to help each other. You know, we're doing it by, by you know, talking about our ideas through microphones. They're doing it by hearing the things that resonate with them and embracing those ideas, implementing their lives, and also by sharing that with their friends. We're all helping each other. No one of us in the system is more or less important. We're, it's a machine where we all have to take care of each other. And that's how this thing works, you know, and, uh, and we all have a role to play. You know, your job is to make sure that you're constantly bringing in stuff that has value to people. Mm-hmm. You know, their job is, and if you do your job, they'll tune in. And if the value, if the, if the ideas are valuable, they'll apply them. But most importantly, they won't just apply them for themselves. They'll share them with their friends, yeah. you know, whether they share the podcast or whether they just tell their friends about it is irrelevant. But the most important thing is the sharing aspect. And, and I think we forget about that. And, you know, this idea that we have the courage to embrace an infinite mindset and literally reject the pressures that are put on upon us by work, by politics, by media, by society, and say, no, I embrace an infinite mindset. That courage is not an internal fortitude. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not born courageous. We're not born self-confident. Our self-confidence comes from our parents and our teachers and the way we're raised. And when we do things right and we take care of our baby brother, our baby sister, our parents say to us, good job. You know, when we excel, our parents say, good job. And when we're bad, they say, don't do that again. And we mm. learn self-confidence. It is comes from the outside. No one is born like that. And that does not change when we're adults. And the way we maintain courage and self-confidence is by close, loving relationships. You know, a, a world-famous trapeze artist is never going to try a brand new death-defying act for the first time without a net. But he's got, or she's got amazing courage. No. The net is what provides the courage. Mm, yeah. It's external. 
We have courage to do difficult things and embrace an entirely different mindset on how to live our lives. When somebody in our life says to us, I got your back. It's good. I'm here with you. And when it doesn't go well, when, when, when you fall behind or you, or you think you can't do it and you don't have the strength, I'm still here. I'll be with you. That's what gives us the courage. We have courage when we have the confidence that somebody is to our left and to our right to look after us. And we will give others confidence when we take care of the people to the left and to the right of us. This is all, these are all decisions that we get to make. We are in, t- in total control of, whether we, uh, of, of who we take care of. Yeah. Um, and that's where the courage comes from. We have the power uh, to embrace an entirely new type of business that's more infinite-minded, to embrace an entirely new way to live our lives that's infinite-minded, so long as we take care of the people around us and, 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 and take care of them. Well, that was a great conversation. I, um, I really, I really appreciate this idea of the infinite game and as not only as it applies to, to business, but to the, the notion of having a sense of purpose, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and that we're not playing to win. And when we play an infinite game with, with the rules of a finite game, we really end up getting screwed. Yeah. It's people over profits, but people over business, people over numbers, people over career. I think it's just such a positive a spirit. Like I told him off the air, but it's, he's like a spiritual guru in the space that I think needs it the most in a vacuum that, that really is just me first, this rat race that uh, it's, they're going to win or take, take all. And I think that this is much needed in our society because so much of what, how we're living, in my opinion, it's unsustainable. And I think that way that he is talking about, it's not anti-capitalism. It really is going to be the saving grace of our way of life. Got a question you'd like us to answer? The Goop team is keeping a running list for us. So just hit them up at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. At the end of every episode, we'll be answering a question from one of you guys. If you have a question about us or about men and wellness or really anything else is on your mind, just let us know. As a functional medicine practitioner, it's been fun seeing the questions that have already come in on different food philosophies and ways to approach health and well-being. And I love to talk about food and cooking and, well, reality is anything. I just love to talk. So send your questions over to the Goop team on Instagram or Facebook. As Goop likes to say, nothing is off limits. Hey guys, time for another edition of Ask Me Anything. This one comes from Chris. He asks, how do you work to maintain a relationship when your partner is not as conscious about gut health and eating clean as you are? Hmm. That is a, that's a really tough one. Yeah. Um, because you can't, particularly in the, con- in the context of a relationship, a romantic relationship, trying to, to be the nanny and <laughs> constantly telling someone, oh, you can't eat that, don't eat that, don't yeah. eat that. It becomes, it puts an undue amount of stress on, on your relationship. I always, my approach is always you, you catch more flies with honey. So if you can just cook really good food and take it upon yourself to start to instill some good habits in your house and your shared meals, and then just check check in on them throughout the course of the day. Like, hey, what are your lunch plans? What are you doing for lunch? Mm-hmm. Um, or do you want to meet me for lunch and maybe we'll go and get something healthy? Or if yeah. you can do that. Or you can do what I do with my girlfriend, which is make her lunch every day. I love it. Yeah, I agree with you. You don't want to be this preachy, dogmatic person. It turns people off. It definitely is good to come from a place of love. Let them know know the information, but say it in a way that they can receive it. And sometimes it's just leading by example and not 
preaching to them because everybody has to have their own wake-up call yeah. for these sort of things and they may just need more time to absorb this information to see how they can best you know utilize this information in their own life because yeah. it should be a lifestyle and it shouldn't be something because some, their their partner is like nagging them to do it or you know right. uh, shaming them or you know punishing them by not living the healthy life that you think they, they should live when I was um when I was getting on my journey and I had gone from being really sick to getting healthy, I would frequently go to events with my colleagues, other chefs, and invariably at any one of these events, four to five people would come up to me and or they'd see me and then they'd be like, oh, I shouldn't be drinking this bourbon around here. I shouldn't be eating this, you know, this pork belly around here. I shouldn't have this pizza. You know, you're going to judge me. Mm -hmm. And what I always tried to make clear to people, and I still do, is like, man, I'm just doing me. Mm -hmm. I'm doing me, and it's working for me. Yeah. If that if that's inspiring to you, then then you do you. Yeah. And if you want some help, I'll give it to you. But I'm not gonna I'm not gonna judge you. That's you're on yeah. your own. Everyone's on their own trip. Yeah. You can almost feel it in the at the table when you're eating out with people feeling like you're yeah. going to judge them. And I tell them like, this is no judgment zone. You don't have to apologize nope. because you're eating what you choose to eat. I don't, yeah. that's not my thing. Uh, it's funny. I'm friends with some uh, rabbis and some pastors and they get the same thing when people are swear at the table uh, or they eat, they, they're drinking alcohol and they're like, guys, like we're, we, we can be human to right. human. We don't have yeah. to be holier than thou. Uh, we're like food priests. Yeah. <laughs> Except if you eat gluten in front of me, you will die and go to hell. <laughs> Other than that. <laughs> Other than that. Love your neighbor. Yeah. <laughs> That's it for today. Thanks for hanging out with us. Will and I would love to know what you think about Goop Fellas. If you have a chance, please rate and review the podcast here. And if you like what you're hearing, hit subscribe and pass it along to a friend. To see more, head to goop.com slash goopfellas. And we hope you'll be here again next Wednesday. Talk soon.